I remember. I remember the first time I walked onto the campus of Wheaton College and I saw the magic graph. I was a junior in high school, I was exploring college options and I was in awe with this beautiful campus and all these smart, super nice young Christians walking around campus. I want to be these people, I said to myself. And then I walked into a microeconomics class. See, I knew I wanted to be a pastor already at that point, but I also knew that I wanted to study business so I could understand organizations. When I sat down in Microecon 101, the professor started explaining how the price of something was the intersection of the supply curve and the demand curve, I practically drooled on my desk. I must come here and learn the magic of economics. A couple of years later, I did. And the magic faded, faded quickly. Because economics, it turns out, is not so simple. You all know this. A large portion of our national debates center around the economy the market, all these nouns that we have personified and talk about like people. The market dived today. We say like a, a swim instructor talking about a swim student or the economy is pumping and doing well. We might mention to family members like we were doctors talking about the health of a patient. We personify these words because they matter so much to us and they determine so much about our lives. The reason these ideas become contentious, however, is that the lived reality of the market or the economy is so different for the billions of God's children who participate in it, especially those living in daily, often life-threatening poverty. Now, the Apostle Paul knew well the inequalities of the Greco-Roman Empire. The Christians in Jerusalem were much poorer on average than their peers in the Roman cities where Paul established churches or wrote letters to. So in 2 Corinthians, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth and asking them to send money to Jerusalem's impoverished believers. One might see this as a welfare check. Others might see this as an ask for a kind of donation from individuals. But for Paul, taking care of the poor is a direct result of one's Christology. See, Paul introduces a new metaphor for the work of Jesus in this passage by reminding the Corinthians of God's immeasurable generosity in the person of Jesus. Paul said, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Although he was rich, he became poor for your sakes so that you could become rich through his poverty. It's just like we say at baptism at CCPC in the words of 1 John, we love because God first loved us. We serve the world because God came to redeem this world. We give from our abundance because Jesus gave it all. God became poor and asks us to pursue solidarity with the poor as well. Now, Paul is clear that he doesn't want the Corinthians to have to go as far as Jesus. He doesn't want them to have to suffer poverty themselves. He said in the scriptures, it isn't that we want others to have financial ease and you to have financial difficulties, but it's a matter of equality. Equality. Now, what that financial equality looks like in practical terms, however, that's what got me so jaded in college. It's because when I took that economics class as a real college student, 
the first day of class, our professor draws a circle on the whiteboard. He divides it into eight slices, like a pizza. Dr. Haltman says, we have a resource here, a pizza. There are 20 of us in the class. Some of us helped to make the pizza. Others did nothing at all except to show up to the table. Now, how should we figure out how to allocate these slices, these resources? Instantly, my roommate shoots his hand up before the permission to speak is even granted, and he cries out, war! He was right. Violence or war is one way that societies have allocated resources historically. Other suggestions included giving out larger or smaller portions of the pizza, depending on how much work someone did to help make that pizza. Or there's this most popular of opinions, divide the slices up evenly. Everyone should get the same. Now that was the first time I learned about the economic concept of scarcity. Economists suggest that our world consists of a scarce amount of resources. And economics seeks to maximize utility which is just another way of saying that it tries to figure out the best ways for us to allocate those limited resources, to make the most amount of people the most amount of happy. As my college roommate pointed out, however, we've often substituted power for other values in our economic systems, which leads us to ask, what are the best ways to make ends meet for all of humanity? And what values should drive our work to increase prosperity for all. Now, this is a difficult conversation. Even in our very progressive congregation, we still have a lot of different ideas on how to go about this. If we had all the answers, we wouldn't be debating these questions nationally over and over again. Many of us believe in the power of business to create jobs, and we see the inequality problem as easily addressable if you're only willing to fund more entrepreneurial efforts. Others think that taxes are the best way to redistribute wealth in a fair, just way. And in between those are these believers in a totally free market, but where the government acts to create very strong safety nets and benefits for all Americans, regardless of level of income or current employment. But all these conversations about tax rates and business subsidies, they're all rooted in the same striving for the best form of economics for the most amount of people. This conflict of conversation isn't old. The Bible even points to conflicted views on how to manage our economic systems. Most of us take for granted that in our world, loans paid back with interest for houses, cars, big construction projects, government bonds, that they're simply a regular part of everyday life. But read Deuteronomy 23, where God commands, don't charge your fellow Israelites interest, whether on money, provisions, or anything one might loan. You can charge foreigners interest, but not your fellow Israelite. Do this so that the Lord your God blesses you in all your work on the land you are entering to possess. Friends, if we were to take this command uncritically, we would be in deep trouble. Interest-based loans are the bedrock of modern capitalism. Should we entirely upend our economy so we can follow this utterance from God now, on the other hand, it looks as if the first community of believers in the Acts of the Apostles performed radical economic solidarity. Acts says all the believers were united and shared everything. 
they would sell pieces of property and possessions and distribute the proceeds to everyone who needed them. Every day they met together in the temple and ate in their homes. They shared food with gladness and simplicity. Now, reading the Bible critically and faithfully is part of our task as Christians called to serve the least of these in order that we may serve angels unawares, as the Gospel of Matthew in the book of Hebrews reminds us. For example, it's not feasible to rid ourselves of interest-based loans. We know that. However, listen to these commands later in the chapter of Deuteronomy that we just read. It says, if you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you can eat as many grapes as you like until full but don't carry any away in a basket. You can go into your neighbor's grain field. You can pluck ears by hand, but you aren't allowed to cut off any of your neighbor's grain with a sickle. Now, at first hearing with Western ears, this sounds like trespassing, right? But historically, these laws attempted to balance a person's right to a dignified life lived in rhythm with the bounty of the land alongside an understanding that sometimes we need to share, and sometimes that sharing isn't just when we personally choose to give a gift. Torah generosity included the observed reality for the sake of justice, some of our neighbor's abundance should be ours too. How much? Deuteronomy attempts to put the limit on a few handfuls of grapes or a few handfuls of wheat that you can retrieve without tools. Clearly in our modern context is a little more complicated. Regardless, when discussing the impact of income inequality and the plight of the poor in our world, the Bible points us to a few clear values. First, we are all created in the image of God, the imago dei. We are granted the roles of stewards of the land and its bounty. Humans share an innate dignity in their shared origins as creatures formed in the reflection of their creator. Each life is precious to God. And we have a Christian responsibility to constantly work toward the full thriving of each child of God. The second clear biblical value, just as in Deuteronomy and 2 Corinthians scriptures we read, is that this Bible is chock full of admonitions to help the poor to serve the cause of justice. According to Sojourners Magazine, which is a Christian justice magazine, there are some 2,000 verses of Holy Writ that address poverty and justice. Don't worry, you don't have to do the math. That's a lot of the Bible. Finally, our final value, we would do well to remember Jesus' remarks during the Sermon on the Mount, most especially this line, you may hear me say this during communion sometimes. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. The poor have a special place in God's heart. We're reminded multiple times in the Bible that helping the poor is akin to helping God directly. Like in Proverbs 19, verse 17, which suggests, Those who are gracious to the poor lend to the Lord, and the Lord will fully repay them. God's call to address poverty is undeniable. How we do that in our modern context within a global financial system, that's a much more complicated question. And it's one that beckons us to come together in a deliberative dialogue. 
Next Sunday, July 5th at 1.30 p.m., using the National Institutes Forum's issue guide, we'll begin to explore options for spreading prosperity and improving opportunity. So I invite you to that dialogue. If you wanna be a part of that, please send me an email this week and I can get you the issue guide so you can read and prepare a little bit ahead of time. It's only about 10 pages, it's not much. I am so proud to be part of a church that declares Christ our center, children our blessing, justice our passion. The trickiest part of justice is always the how. And reasonable, loving people who share a desire to lift up the lowly can disagree on that. But using this deliberative dialogue process, we can identify the values that we share as we seek to join Christ in bringing forth the kingdom of justice and peace. Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, wanted them to know that if the gospel truly took root in their hearts, it would be apparent by the fruit of generosity flowing from them and into their city. And this is why that jaded college kid at Wheaton, who lost his trust in the magic graph, didn't give up. I finished my business economics degree, and I committed myself to pastoring. Because I have witnessed, time and time again, how God uses gatherings of the faithful to help turn communities away from inequality and towards a better world for the most vulnerable among us. I thank God for the ways that God has used CCPC through TAP and our partnerships with Shikoho, the refugee resettlement community, and our gun violence prevention work. And I thank God for the way that God will continue to use CCPC, just as Jesus said. For blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be filled. Amen and amen.